Well, let me welcome you to Applewood Community Church on this Resurrection Sunday morning. To those of you who are our guests this morning, not normally with us, we are delighted that you're here. Thank you for for joining us this morning. It is a it is a great celebration. We um, some of us were in here on Friday night, Good Friday night. It was dark. It was sad. It was bleak. This is Resurrection Sunday morning. And all around the world today, God's people, regardless of where they are in the circumstances, will be repeating again and again what we have said a couple of times this morning, which, by the way, you didn't say very enthusiastically. So, someone will say, Christ is risen, and God's people will respond. Okay, here we go. Christ is risen. That was pretty good. One more time. I think we could get the umbrellas to move a little bit. Here we go. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And for that, we celebrate this morning. You know, I received one of those letters earlier in the week for which there was little celebration. It uh, came from a financial institution. And they assured me they felt there was very little likelihood that my account had been breached. But just in case, maybe you should change your password and your username and the little symbol that, you know, goes on that that page when you sign in. You know, I never paid much attention to those letters in the past. But... In light of the target breach that happened at the end of this last year, I changed my username and my password and the little symbol. As much as I was attached to that, I changed it. I was reading the story earlier this week of a man who a few years ago was a victim of identity theft. It was horrible. The story was that in fewer than six months, close to a million dollars in merchandise, gambling, telephone service charges were siphoned out of his account. His attempts to salvage his finances cost him nearly $100,000, bled his savings dry, his retirement accounts, his credit score, once excellent, was just now decimated, and his, his account information. Social security number, address, phone numbers, even historical information, it was still being used. Even as he was going through all of this, still being used in an attempt to open credit cards and bank accounts, it was a nightmare. In his words, I have no identity. I have no legacy. My, my identity is public knowledge, and even though it's ruined, they're still using it. It has ruined me financially and emotionally. The Identity Theft Resource Center, located in San Diego, California, states that the emotional impact of identity theft has been found to parallel that of victims of violent crime. And about this time, you're thinking, in this Easter Sunday morning, what on earth is he talking about? What does identity theft have to do with Resurrection Sunday morning? That would be a fair question if that's going through your head. I have to tell you, I think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the solution to the most serious identity theft that has ever happened. 
Let me explain. We tend to think in terms of identity theft as being modern, electronic, happens, you know, subtly. And yet, the scripture, I think, identifies for us the truth that identity theft has been going on for the human race for a long, long time. And it's an identity theft that has done and continues to do, I think, far more damage than people ever realize. And to understand it, we would go back to the story of creation in the book of Genesis, where the Bible begins. And it tells us that God created people. They were created in His image. They were created to live in a relationship with Him, a relationship of of love and intimacy. Like, quite frankly, none of us in the human realm could, could understand that. But that's what we were created for. And the foundation of that relationship, what what kept that relationship secure and intact and life-giving for humanity was living in a trust with God. Trusting that God gives life. Trust that the way that God says life should be lived is the way, in fact, that life should be lived because that is how He created us to live according to his instructions, because he is the one who made life. Unless you think for a moment that that perhaps God was on some kind of an ego trip and demanding obedience just for obedience, I think there's a whole lot more to it than that. As, As our creator, there is no one who knows how human life is supposed to work better than the one who created it. There is no one who knows what will bring satisfaction and fulfillment better than the one who created us to find that satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. God knew and God still knows what is best for us. He has made us for Himself. And what is best for us is a relationship of love and intimacy with Him that can only be experienced when we are living according to his plan and not our plan. Tell me, when you pull up to the gas pump at the gas station, what do you put in your car? Why do you do that? Couldn't you throw a little diesel in there, whether or not it's a diesel engine or not? You know, there's always plenty of wiper fluid there in that container. And in these these days of of rising gas prices, doesn't it make sense that we try something else? And you're thinking, I'm an idiot. We put gas in our cars because they were made to run on gas. If they're diesel, they're made to run on that. You don't put gasoline in there. That's the same kind of truth that we're talking about here this morning. People were created to run through life with God. And anything else is not going to work for the long haul. It's what we were created for, to live in relationship with Him, forever exploring the inexhaustible riches and depth of who God is and finding our satisfaction in Him as His people. People enjoying relationship with God. That is really key to our celebration this morning. 
And, and so that's really kind of a quick summary of Genesis 1 and 2. If you've never read Genesis 1 and 2, go read that. There's so much more there. But it's just kind of the, the Reader's Digest version of what happens in those first two chapters of Genesis. And then in chapter 3, the enemy of God shows up and suggests to God's people that there is actually another way. This car can run on wiper fluid. Trust me, you just need to give it a shot. And the enemy begins to suggest to God's people that God is untruthful, that God is holding out on them, that God really doesn't mean what he says, and he convinces them to disobey God, to begin to live life in a way that God has not created them to live, and especially to become the masters of their own lives. And the tragedy is, they listened. And we still listen. People all over the world listen to that lie, and they strive to live a life for which they were not created, and it is a life that will never bring satisfaction and fulfillment. Not in this life, nor the life that comes after this one. The relationship with God is broken. That is identity theft of huge proportion, my friends. This week I read that one of the financial analysts who's been closely involved with the target breach feels like when everything is added up, all of the losses will be somewhere in the vicinity of a billion dollars. I think that has nine zeros after it. A billion dollars. You know, that's just, that's just a whole lot bigger than my bank account. And probably yours as well. And as staggering an amount as that sounds, I've got to tell you that the identity theft that has happened to humanity is far more significant, far more costly. People have been robbed of their most precious possession, their identity as people of God, people who live in relationship with God. It's, it's an identity theft of enormous and eternal consequence. And the Bible is clear that, that the enemy of God continues to this day to convince people of the rightness of that decision, that living life apart from God is, is good because God is not who he claims to be, that we were created for something else, and that ultimate satisfaction is found in anything and everything but a relationship with God, that for which we were created. And so then we fast forward, Several thousand years, and, and we come to the first resurrection morning. We're going to read about that together. It's from John's Gospel. All four of the Gospels record the resurrection story. But, but I like John's because he, he includes a, a certain person in this story that I think is, is oh so special and, and whose life is oh so significant in terms of, of our understanding of the importance of of the resurrection. So, if you would allow me to read through the first part of this account, and then I'm going to have you stand with me and we'll read together on the screen the remainder of John's resurrection account. He says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, who we know to be John, the author of this gospel, he outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first, and he bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go on in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw, and he believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So let's stand together and read the rest of the story, shall we? Together. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On this resurrection morning, this is the word of the Lord for his people. Go ahead and be seated. If you are new with us this morning, I want to just explain that we will often interact with just a brief neighbor question. And that is not done to make anyone feel uncomfortable. It's always done with my hope of kind of engaging us a little bit more. Maybe making us think perhaps about something that, that we hadn't thought of before. And so, so here is the question. Heather, can we put that up? Why do you think it's so important to marry to find the body of Jesus? It's just speculation. We're not told, but she's intent. She's concerned. She wants to know where the body is. So ask someone next to you, what do you think? Why was Mary so concerned about this? Just take a a, a minute or two. Okay, we ready? What do you think? What'd your neighbor think? You can always blame it on your neighbor. (laughs) Why was Mary so intent? Okay, certainly to Jesus... 
to her, Jesus had been a very real person. And there, there was that, that sense of, of validation. Pay respect. Yeah, yeah. Very likely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very likely. Very likely. We don't know a whole lot about Mary. We do know from the gospel records that she was a very devoted follower of Jesus. There are numerous places throughout the, the, the gospel accounts that where Jesus was, there was Mary. We do, however, know one significant truth about Mary's life. Mark and Luke both record for us in their Gospels that Mary had been demon-possessed. They tell us that she had been possessed by seven demons. My friends, that is some serious identity theft. To be possessed by seven demons. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of demon possession, but the scripture gives us some images here and there uh, that, that make it uh, some pretty powerful stuff. I had a theology professor and, and a mentor in my college days who, who once had an encounter with a young woman who was demon possessed. The thing that stands out in my memory of the story that he shared with us in class one day was the power that controlled this young woman and turned her before his eyes into someone that he had not known her to be. It's a friend of the family, someone who was in his church who he had known for years. The power that controlled and changed this young woman. And I would suggest to you this morning that that had been Mary's life before meeting Jesus times seven. She'd been controlled by powerful forces that had taken her identity, had stripped her life of true meaning, of true satisfaction, turned her into someone that she was never created to be. And who was it that cast those demons out of her? It was Jesus. Jesus had rescued Mary from a miserable, hopeless existence, and he had restored her true identity. As you've done there is always speculation about why she was looking for Jesus' body. We don't really know, but I am suspicious. Knowing about Mary what we do, that <clears throat> she simply could not get her mind around the truth that the one who had rescued her from that life was gone. I think she may have come to the tomb in hopes of realizing it had all been a bad dream. Once there, she couldn't, even, she couldn't even get a look at the body as the truth all came back. Couldn't even get a look at the body. Did you hear how she responded when the angels asked her why she was crying as if they didn't know? 
I think it's one of those statements in Scripture that we sometimes need to kind of read behind the scenes. Uh, there's, there's a setup there. The angels know something that she doesn't at this point, and they are in utmost confidence thinking, there is no reason to cry here, ma'am. But when they asked her, why are you crying? Her response tells us volumes, I think, about what was in her heart. She said, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Not taken Jesus away, taken my Lord away. Those words are so important for our understanding of what's going on in this text. Because in the language of Mary's day, a Lord was someone who ruled over another person or persons. A Lord was an owner. A Lord was a master. A Lord who was someone who had control of others. And in those two little words, my Lord, we learn something very important about Mary. She had given control of her life to Jesus. The one who had rescued her from the control of other forces that had only brought pain and heartache into her life. Jesus had restored to her the identity that had been stripped away by the demons. Jesus was her new master and her new owner, and she simply did not know what she was going to do without him. I think Hollywood has done us a bit of a disservice The movies that have been created that portray demon possession make it something that is wild, crazy, easily identifiable. But I'm not sure that it's always that way. I read a story from a pastor who traveled to Ecuador many years ago, and he spent a couple of weeks living in the mountains with the Quechua people. He writes this. He said, The Quechua live amidst the most mind-numbing squalor that I have seen. The disease and the disfigured bodies... They're heartbreaking. The bugs and the stench everywhere. People are living in a hole in the ground and they call it a house. They were feeding on rotten food and they were prizing garbage as possessions. But they didn't know it. Why? He said, because everyone lived that way. They had never been given a picture of what it means to be a genuinely healthy human being. They did not know what that kind of life looked like. I think the most serious form of identity theft happens every day, my friends, all the time to people everywhere because Satan, the enemy of God in early Genesis, is Satan still the enemy of God today? He succeeded early on at convincing people that life is best lived without God. And he continues to convince people that life is best lived without God that they should take control of their lives, which in time proved to be just another lie because to think that we are in control of our lives is in reality to allow the enemy of God to be in control of our destinies. And when people do that, they will find their lives suddenly filled and controlled by what I call the less flamboyant demons. Things don't fly around and we don't necessarily hear voices and we don't necessarily hear gruesome things. Not the Hollywood demons that are sometimes painted on the screen before us, but demons that are much more subtle 
Some are even acceptable, and yet they are absolutely every bit as destructive as the stuff we see painted on the screen. They come in all shapes, and they come in all sizes. Financial pursuits, concerns about future security, focus upon health and fitness and and wanting to look good, personal reputation, concern for what others think about me or what they should think about me. These would be some of the more subtle demons that control us easily. Some of the more maybe recognizable ones, the ones that we would identify as perhaps more damaging would, would be the addictions. Addictions to substances. Addictions to food. Addictions to relationships. Fears of all kinds of things. The list goes on and on and on. There are demons for everyone. There is no one size fits all. There are plenty to go around. But here are two things that are always true of every demon. Number one, they will never, ever call you to put your focus upon God. Never. They will turn the focus upon you because they want you to believe that life lived in relationship to God is not important, that in fact there is more to life than what God offers. They will never turn the focus in life upon God, always upon you. The second thing that is true of every demon They will always work to make you believe that satisfaction in life is all about the other stuff. Having the right stuff, knowing the right people, being in the right relationships, living this way or living that way, because after all, life is really about you. And according to Jesus, it is all lies. Before he died, Jesus told his followers that he had come to bring abundant life. And that, in fact, is why Jesus came to die on the cross, to restore a broken relationship between humanity and God, the relationship for which people have been created. Jesus came through his death on the cross to restore what had been lost and what was broken. He said, I've come to bring abundant life. And abundant means full and satisfying. Regardless of circumstances in which we find ourselves, those who live in relationship with God through Christ can find life to be full and satisfying. That is the reason. is because the relationship has been restored. So if you're living in today without knowing Jesus, the risen one as your Lord, as the one who should be the master and controller and owner of your life, if you cannot say as Mary did, my Lord, then you just need to know you've been scammed. 
You've been ripped off. You may have absolutely everything that our culture says is important. Power, fame, wealth, prestige, and everything else. But if Jesus is not your Lord, then you're a victim of the lies of the enemy of God. Your identity has been stolen. And the result of that is that you will never experience the life that you were created for, not for this life and not for all eternity. And that, my friends, would just be a colossal waste because God created us for himself. God created us to live a life that is rich and abundant in terms of our satisfaction in life. Suddenly we don't find ourselves turning to the demons that haunt our existence because we know that they don't bring satisfaction. But in fact, God brings satisfaction to us when we, as Mary did on that first resurrection morning, recognize that everything that Jesus said is true. The abundant life that he promised, it is absolutely true because he was still alive as she found on that morning. He was still alive to make sure that the life that he came to bring, the relationship that he came to restore, was indeed true for this life and for all of eternity. I hope that if you're here this morning and you are someone who hasn't made that surrender, I hope that you will. Make a decision to surrender control of your life to the one who always makes good on his promises, to the one who will keep you secure, keep you satisfied in this life and then in the next life because only he can restore to you the life for which you were created. So as the praise team comes this morning to lead us in our response, I want to just pray and then remind you again of why we're excited on this Easter Sunday morning. Father, for the goodness of the life that you have given us through Jesus, we are grateful for the ways in which we give ourselves to everything that never brings satisfaction. We are sorry. We ask that by the power of the risen Christ, you will communicate to our hearts and to our minds the importance of a life surrender, giving it up so that we might find the restoration of our identity as people who are created to live in relationship with you who loves us infinitely. In the name of Jesus, the risen Lord, we pray. Amen.